Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a sucker for a real good rescue story. Uh, you probably heard about this story last year, but Richard Wilbank and his Cavalier King Spaniel Gunner went out for a walk by a pond near their home in Florida. And as they were walking by the pond, all of a sudden a four-foot alligator just jumped out on the shore and just, just snatched up Gunner. And immediately, Richard jumped into the pond. Okay, Richard was, I think, in his 70s. And immediately, he jumped in the pond, started wrestling that alligator, and was able to rescue Gunner from the jaws of the alligator, and they were all okay. He said, uh, Richard said that he and Gunner had a few uh, puncture wounds, but in his word, that Gunner is now right as rain. What a rescue story. It's interesting, I read a, another story online this past week about another man uh, with a dog in Florida that it seems like the same thing happened, same kind of rescue. Now, I don't know about you, but after I heard about that one last year in Florida, I'm not walking a dog by a pond in that area. Rescue. I think we can all connect deep down with a good rescue story because inherently we know our world needs rescue. Or as N.T. Wright says in his sort of classic British way, our world needs to be put to rights. Look at the constant conflict in the Middle East on the news pages, newspaper pages every single day, and we know our world is in need of, of rescue. A global pandemic has not only wreaked havoc around the world, but now as we begin to, to emerge out of this time, we're going to see the glaring differences between wealthier nations and poorer nations. A rescue is needed. There's violence against others in our city streets, violence against others in manicured suburbs, and sadly, violence against others domestically in homes. We see violence, we hear the sirens, and we know our world is in need of rescue. According to UNICEF, there are approximately 150 billion children, B, billion with a B, 150 billion children in the world suffering from multidimensional poverty. In other words, they lack proper nutrition and clean drinking water. Our world is in need of rescue. And I've not even mentioned racial injustice that has plagued our country and other countries around the world. This world needs to be put to rights. Now, you may be saying, well, thanks, Phil. I felt pretty good before I came in here uh, today or before I started listening today. But we know and we admit there are a lot of challenges facing our world. And let me say this, I'm really inspired by efforts to tackle some of these challenges. I'm blown away, I've mentioned this before, by the speed with which the vaccine was developed. I've, I've hope and I've heard that wealthier nations will begin sharing vaccines with poorer nations. I believe uh, President Biden announced something to that effect this past week from our country we have a long way to go, but we know that progress has been made in the area of racial injustice and billions of dollars, billions of dollars a year, and scores of volunteers are sent to help with poverty and hunger around the world. And by the way, I'm also really hopeful for the leadership that millennials play in our city, nation, and world. I believe there is enormous potential in the generation that is emerging as leaders around our country and our world. But there is one problem that no generation can solve. 
The greatest minds cannot tackle it. The strongest military can't conquer it. The savviest political and legal minds can't legislate or litigate a solution. And that is, as human beings, we have a sin problem. And our sin is really contagious. It has a massive impact on others. It is the historic global spiritual pandemic. It even has a massive impact on all of creation. St. Paul said that even creation groans and is in that, that great word, travail, you know, which means laborious effort, because of how we have messed up this world through our sin. In our sinful state, we are in a spiritual death spiral, alienated from God, from each other, and even alienated from the planet on which we live. In sin, we are terminally at odds with God. We can't fix the problem, but God has. God's rescue story is writ large throughout the pages of the Bible. And in the giving of Jesus, our Savior, God has sent a rescue mission from heaven. Last week, our text had this power-packed, short little verse from Isaiah. It's sort of the gospel in the Old Testament, if you will. Isaiah 49.16 that reads, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Well, today we have another short, really short, power-packed text from St. Paul's letter to the church in Rome. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn there, or if you uh, want to launch it on uh, your reading device, it's Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. I'm not going to read the entire introduction uh, to Romans, because one of the things that we, we realize as we come to this place in Romans is that this is the actual uh, big idea of the entire letter. This is the thesis statement of the entire letter uh, to the church at Rome. Paul writes this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul writes, I am not ashamed. Have you ever been ashamed of someone or something you have done? You know, we usually apply the word in two different ways. One is to feel guilty for something you have done that is a perceived wrong. The other way is to be reluctant, to have a reluctance to do something out of fear of ridicule or embarrassment uh, or shame. Uh, a few years ago, I was on uh, the campus of James Madison University, my alma mater, and a friend, my, a friend of mine, uh, he and I went into the bookstore, and he, he, he's from Alabama, so he has this really thick southern accent, and he almost screamed across the store. He said, Phil, you've got to come over here. You've got to buy these. And I thought, you know, whenever somebody says that, I always have my antennas up. But anyway, or antenna up. And he went and he pointed out these right here. So not only are these just hideous crocs, okay? They're hideous purple crocs at that. And he convinced me to buy them because he's from Alabama. And he said, listen, the next time I'm in Tuscaloosa, uh, I'm going to buy some red ones for the Crimson Tide. And you can wear your purple ones and I can wear my red ones. 
And uh, he, to this day, hasn't bought the red ones. But, um, but anyway, when I got these home, I put them on and walked around my neighborhood in, in Richmond at the time to uh, uh, walk my dog. And I, I just, for some reason, and maybe it was my imagination, but I could just feel the stares. And I could just hear the laughter. And to this day, I've not worn them since, other than to, to do yard work uh, out uh, in the yard. It's sort of fear of embarrassment. Maybe in a much deeper way, if you remember the story of when Jesus was arrested, or in a very much deeper way, it's Peter in the courtyard, when he was ashamed or embarrassed to stand with Jesus. Now, we know that St. Paul was a bold man, and he was courageous. But you could almost understand his temptation to be a little bit reluctant. One scholar noted that he had been imprisoned in Philippi, chased out of Thessalonica, smuggled out of Berea, and laughed at in Athens. In Corinth, his message was considered foolishness to anyone who would hear, yet Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed. And so here's what I want us to do with this power-packed little text this morning, is I want us to see uh, the working of the gospel, the access to the gospel, and the result of the gospel. In other words, let's pull apart for a little bit God's rescue plan. The working of the gospel. Again, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then for the Gentile. The Christian concept of salvation may be one of the most misunderstood and partially understood of the Christian doctrines. And and the church is solely responsible for this misunderstanding in my view. Tragically, Christians have reduced the concept of salvation to sort of a pie in the sky, how do I get to heaven when I die? It's sort of a fire insurance type of thing. Pie in the sky, how do I get to heaven when I die? And we've reduced it to that, to simply only meaning that. Now, salvation certainly means being reconciled with God for all eternity. It does not mean less than that, but it means so much more. In the Bible, Salvation is far more of of a comprehensive concept. So, for example, we see salvation from physical illness. In Matthew 9, for example, when the woman with the blood disorder touched Jesus, Jesus told her that her faith had healed her. Now, to be sure, this does not mean that everyone who has Christian faith is healed physically. As a matter of fact, we all are going to suffer physically and we're all going to die one day unless, unless the Lord returns first. But it does mean that Christians believe at some point in the fullness of time that we have a perfect body and that we will have a resurrected body, which is that perfect body. And there is this sense of body-spirit connection to Christian salvation. And so it's salvation for healing. There's salvation from danger. When Peter was walking on the water and began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, in that moment, Peter wasn't saying, Lord, save me so I can go to heaven one day. No, he was asking to be saved from physical danger now. He was basically saying, I don't want to go down where Moby Dick or Jaws or whatever was beneath the sea. He didn't want to go there. Again, we know that Christians face danger in this world. But a Christian should not be And this is a point of discipleship. It's a point of spiritual maturity. 
But a Christian should not be enslaved by the threat of danger. Let me say that again. A Christian should not be enslaved by the threat of danger. And so sometimes I see, and, 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 and if, if we're all honest, fight this battle in my own way, of fear of safety. You know, fear of this or fear of that. But imagine what would happen if all of God's people withdrew from the dangerous places in the world. Are we saying the Gospel shouldn't go there? I read a great article one time uh, where uh, one, one writer said, you know, I stopped praying for my kids' physical safety. And he said, God, make them dangerous in this world for you. I said, I don't mess with you for a little bit, won't it? So as a Christian, we're saved from, the, from being a coward in the face of danger. We have security of this soul no matter what happens to us here. There's salvation from sin's power. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, bless their hearts. Corinthians just could not get out of their own way when it came to trying to live faithfully. But they seemed to find trouble at every turn. And he wrote to them, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you're tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And then there's salvation from ourselves. Let me explain what I mean here. There's a great C.S. Lewis quote that says there are two kinds of people in this world. There will be two kinds of people that face the Lord. And there are those to whom God will say, um, or there, there are those that w- who will say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those to whom God will say, Thy will be done. So in other words, uh, we've talked about this before, but there's St. Augustine's sort of order of loves. Okay, let me just explain that for a second. So Augustine says, you know, the, 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 most, the highest order of love and the highest priority in love is to love God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the next order of love is to, is to love people. And to, to love people and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. And then the next order of love is it's okay to love things. Okay? But don't get the order wrong. In other words, don't love people more than you love God and don't love things more than you love people. It's the order of love. But what happens is, as we journey along in this life, we tend to put... you. Can, put a lot of different things in this category, but we just tend to make idols or make little g gods out of things other than God or out of people other than God. And there are some people who do this their entire life journey. And so they get the end of their run and there's two kinds of people. Those who say to God, I've lived my life with your will be done. Or those to whom God says, thy will be done. In other words, what you wanted on earth, you'll get in eternity. If you didn't want God on earth, why would you want God for all eternity? Thy will be done. So salvation from our own self-centeredness. And then there's salvation from ultimate defeat. In other words, in the fullness of God's time, sin and evil and death and disease will forever be defeated. God will fully redeem and reconcile the world to Himself through Christ. And we will join in this ultimate victory. This ultimate rescue. This ultimate happy ending. You know, I've been having these courtyard conversations that you've heard, uh, and Pastor Brian's going to share a little bit more about those in a little bit. But 
in, in these courtyard conversations, I'm asking people, you know, how did God speak to you during this pandemic? How are you different because of this pandemic? What did God do in your life because of this pandemic? And one of the things that, that Jody shared, and she shared with, with others, is that uh, in, in, in uh, a really critical time in the pandemic, you know, uh, January, February, uh, December, January, February, when it was just really bad. So that winter flu season, it was just really bad. And sh- she started watching for the second time Downton Abbey. Now, down, if you don't know Downton Abbey, it is not just a one-hour show and that's it. No, she it's like, how many seasons is it? Laura, you know, is it seven, eight, nine, fifty? Seven? It's a lot. And there are a lot of episodes per season. Yeah, a lot. And, and she watched them all. And, and I suffered through a few of them. And I said, I, I'm out. I'm out. And she explained why. It was the greatest thing. She said, I had to watch something where I knew it had a happy ending beautiful it's beautiful that sums up the confidence of the christian faith this world has some tough things about it but we know as god's people there is a happy ending we know in the fullness of god's time sin disease death evil will be vanquished it has a happy ending Salvation is a multi-layered concept. No wonder Paul says he's not ashamed. No wonder we shouldn't be ashamed. Access to the gospel. Paul says this salvation is for everyone who believes, and it is the righteousness that is by faith. Now, faith is another one of these words that has sort of a multi-layered and rich application. For example, it means loyalty. To be, faithful, to be a faithful friend or spouse or family member or disciple is to remain loyal to someone It's to be loyal to Jesus when you're tempted to be ashamed or embarrassed. I was once in a a Bible study with with a group of guys, and I was was, uh, talking about how the Christian faith has some of the the world's greatest intellectuals that are Christians, and sort of giving a defense for the Christian faith, because sometimes people think people of faith aren't, aren't the sharpest knives in the drawer. And, and so, you know, they're, they're, historically, there's St. Paul, there's Thomas Aquinas, there's Blaise Pascal. Today, we would include Francis Collins, director of the NIH, Blaise Pascal, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, William Lane Craig, Marilyn McCord Adams, just to name a few. So in the study, I said to these guys, I said, hey, you know, it's not like all Christians just fell off the turnip truck. To which one of my friends from rural North Carolina said, hey, what's wrong with the turnip truck? Now, if you're not from the South, it, it's it, the turnip truck. Anyway, falling off the turnip truck means you're not the, the sharpest knife in the drawer. But he was being loyal to his heritage. And he was being also schooling me for, hey, faith is for everybody. Faith also means belief. It is the conviction that something is true. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul writes, if the resurrection did not occur, it was not true. If it was not true, then our faith is futile. It is in vain. It is in shambles. In other words, Paul said, if the resurrection didn't happen, all this is, there's no point. The God who gave life, the God who created life, is the God who gives new life. Faith means full acceptance and absolute trust. 
When Paul uses the term faith, he's rolling all of these applications together. Faith means believing in something in such a way that you'll absolutely stake your life on it. You will not be ashamed and you'll embrace it and take it to the very center of your being. You'll believe it in such a way that you take a step and you act upon it. You've probably heard this before, but let me use the parachute analogy. Let's pretend that my trusty backpack here is actually a trusty parachute. So I can see this parachute and acknowledge that it is a parachute and that it is here. So many people look at Christianity, they say, so I acknowledge Christianity, I believe it's, it's there, and I believe it is a faith in the world, but that's not saving faith. And then I can actually look at this parachute, and I can not just acknowledge it, but I can believe. I can say, you know, I believe that if I put this parachute on my back, and if I jumped out of an airplane, I believe that if I pulled the ripcord, and then I would add, if I believe the person packed it right, right, I would believe that this parachute would save me from falling. But that's still not saving faith, the way Paul describes it. Then there is trusting faith. It is to take this parachute and to say, I'll go all in. And I'll take this parachute and I'll plunge out of an airplane. And I'll trust it. That is life-saving. That is saving faith. It is to trust Jesus to hold you through the fires and sufferings of this world. It is to trust Him to hold you through the face of ridicule. It is to trust Him to be loyal to you when everyone else betrays you. It is to trust Him to walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death and to stake your forever on Him. It is to take the plunge with Him in your business decisions, how you handle your relationships, It's to trust Him with your finances, your identity, your emotional and physical security. It shapes what we believe, to whom we belong, and how we behave in the world. And it also shapes the way we see the world. It shapes the way we view this world. Think again about the parachute analogy. Some of you at the request of the military have skydived before. I don't know why people would choose to jump out of a perfectly flying airplane, but they do. God love you. Thank you for your service. I'm actually serious. Thank you for your service. But those who have taken the plunge and they've gone skydiving, they know the view is completely different. The view of this world is completely different. It's like no other. Faith, when you've taken the plunge with Jesus, changes your perspective. So we cannot be saved. Think about it if we don't completely trust the person who offers us salvation. So we see the work of the Gospel. It saves us. We see the access to the Gospel as full acceptance and trust in Jesus. And then the result of the Gospel. In this thesis statement, Paul uses a third yet rich Christian term, and that is the righteousness of God. I believe in our world today, the word righteous has gotten a really bad rap because it has the connotation of being associated with someone who is self-righteous, or as we say on the turnip truck, acting too big for your britches or holier than thou. But in order for our great human problem to be solved, we have to be in right standing with God. We cannot coexist with a holy and pure and a perfect God in our state of unrighteousness or a state of sin. And this gets to the very core of what it means to be accepted and approved of by God. 
People have tried since the beginning of humankind to gain God's approval. Usually they try it by doing things. If I can just do all the right things, or if I can do more good things than I've done bad things, then I will be approved of by God. But what Paul lays out here for us in this thesis statement is that the concept of righteousness of God is something we can't do on our own. We can't make ourselves righteous before God. We can't put ourselves in a state of approval. Our sins need to be removed. They need to be forgiven. And we cannot forgive ourselves. A matter uh, doing something to someone and, and harming someone in some way, and you say, oh, well, I'm not going to ask for their forgiveness. I'll just forgive myself. No, we wouldn't think about that. The form of the word righteous here always means to declare someone. In other words, it's something that someone does for you. See, in Christ, God declares us innocent. Not because our sin doesn't matter to God. I mean, how many of us would want to follow and trust and worship a God that would just wink at sin? No one would want to do that. No. It's because Jesus dealt with our sin. He atoned for it on the cross. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. He gave us His right standing before God. I call that the great exchange. We get His right standing and He takes on our sin. Therefore, God declares us in right standing because of Jesus. We receive His righteousness. We receive His life. We receive His glory. Well, NCIS, some of you have probably seen the show. It's been on forever. It's one of the longest-running shows in television history. Years ago, it's been quite a while now, in one of the episodes, the late Charles Durning played an elderly ex-Marine who was a Medal of Honor recipient. And in his old age, he confessed to a murder that happened on the battlefield in World War II 60 years earlier. Well, one of the last scenes in the episode starts with a young, somewhat arrogant naval attorney walking in with, with two young MPs to arrest the man so he could stand trial. But they did so in a way that was just overbearing for him. And he became disheveled and he became confused. Uh, take a look at, at what happened next on the screens behind. It's a great scene. When, when the Marines saw the glory and the splendor of the medal, which is the highest medal our country bestows for bravery, they snapped to attention and they rendered honors. But it wasn't for the glory of the old man. It was for the glory due the medal. As Christians, we receive the righteousness of Jesus in all of its glorious splendor because of the heroic action He took when He, our Savior, came to earth and rescued us from the greatest problem of humankind. The problem we cannot solve on our own. That's what it means to be saved by faith. It means you've received the righteousness. You've received the righteousness of Jesus and you're forever reconciled with God. God's rescue plan. The world put to rights. Our lives put to rights through the love and the grace of Jesus. The key for you and me is to take Jesus into the very center of our being. Not to be ashamed. To be fully embrace Him no matter what may come your way. You know, I once chatted with a helicopter pilot who was a rescue pilot. And I asked him, I said, do people ever fight the rescue? 
And he said, absolutely. He said, they lower the basket down to a river or the sea or whatever, and they, they fight it at first, some do, because it's hard to trust. Maybe they're delirious or whatever. But they struggle to trust their rescuer. Are you fighting with your rescuer today? If you are, stop. Trust. Lean in and lean on the rescuing arms of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do. We thank You so much for the gift of salvation that You give to us that starts working in our lives immediately. God, this is not for only for some future reality, but it's for today. And so God, we thank You for that. We thank You for the gift of Jesus. And that as we continue to empty ourselves of our own stuff and our self-centeredness and our, our idols and the different things that we elevate above You, Lord, as we empty ourselves, we invite Jesus to fill us. To fill us with His grace. To fill us with His power. To fill us with His salvation. To fill us with His love. So Lord, I pray for each person here and listening online that we would just simply yield our lives to Your love and to Your grace. To Your salvation in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.